Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. This was the greatest weekend of playoff drama, tension, and entertainment in Major League Soccer history. And even if you don't like or even watch Major League Soccer, you would have enjoyed it. The decision to move to one-off single elimination games paid dividends. It is exactly what you want from any playoff game. Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about what, in my estimation, was the greatest weekend of Major League Soccer playoffs in the league's history. In our Mossy Makes the Case segment, Mossy's going to be talking about the beauty and the promise of youth. In our Ask Alexi segment, we'll be talking about the U.S. men's national team and so much more. But first, joining me, as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire there. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? I am good, although I'm not going to lie. Saturday night was uh, a rough sports night in the Mossy household. Uh, within an hour of each other, uh, the Yankee season officially ended and Michigan season effectively ended. They both suffered heartbreaking defeats. Well, the Wolverines uh, of Michigan, which I know you follow and anybody that listens to us knows you follow, that's not, that was kind of to be ex uh, expected. The Yankee crumbling, uh, we were watching it too because I, I am coming to you from the road. I'm actually in New York now uh, getting ready for the uh, NYCFC Toronto game on Wednesday. But that Saturday, we, uh, we were in Philly for the uh, Philly game, uh, Philly MLS playoff game against the Red Bulls. And we didn't know where we were going. I remember I was watching and obviously uh, the uh, NYCFC with Yankee Stadium and all that kind of stuff, it's, it was all part of it. So we were watching uh, what happened. I was with... Uh, another Yankee fan, and they they just shook their head in, not in, in, they weren't incredulous because the Yankees put themselves in a situation. But were you were you okay enough to continue on with your Saturday night, or was that it? Are you one of those where it just wrecks the entire night and you got to go home? Well, what wrecked the entire night was I had to be awake at two thirty in the morning on Sunday. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, that was a rough turnaround there to go from watching those two games to then having to get like four hours of sleep and then schlep into the office for Cologne Paderborn, which, with all due respect to those two clubs. Uh, <laughs> You can't say with all due respect and then slam somebody. All right? I've told you before, my kids do that where they say with all due respect and then call somebody a horrible name or, or, or make fun of them or something like that. But if, if Paderborn is listening out there, look, Mossy does not speak for me or for this uh, entire podcast out there. So don't take it out on me, my, uh, my friends. All right, Mossy. Well, I'm sorry that your teams lost this week. A lot of teams lost. A lot of teams won. It was an incredible weekend of soccer despite the losses uh, of your 
American football uh, teams and your American baseball teams. Plenty to talk about. We're going to get to all of it on our podcast today. Uh, you ready to light this candle, Mossy? Yes. All right. As you know, each and every week we kick the pod off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week it goes a little something like this. That was awesome. This was the greatest weekend of playoff drama, tension, and entertainment in Major League Soccer history. Every single one of the six games had a compelling story, an overwhelming unpredictability, and a heightened sense of urgency from the first whistle. Every game kept us guessing. And even if you don't like or even watch Major League Soccer, you would have enjoyed it. The decision to move to one-off single elimination games paid dividends as we saw teams who couldn't afford to save anything for later play cautious or take a rest. Even though home teams won five of the six games, you never got the feeling that any away team couldn't win. It is exactly what you want from any playoff game. Atlanta, well, they eked out a 1-0 win at home versus Bruce Arena's resurrected revolution. Seattle, they rode Jordan Morris's first ever hat trick over a plucky Dallas who just wouldn't go away. DC United, they scored in the 93rd minute to tie 1-1 against Toronto, and then they fell apart in extra time. Thanks for the memories, Wayne. RSL, they found magic in the Salt Lake snow in the form of an 87th minute game winner over Portland. Philadelphia Union, they came back twice from a two-goal deficit to finally have their club's defining moment. By the way, that's so Metro. And the LA Galaxy, they went into Minnesota and hung on for a 2-1 away win against the Loons, setting up, yes, another El Trafico. So, if this type of playoff format brings out the best, why not double down? Why not split the Major League Soccer season into two seasons in the spring and fall and create this wonderful playoff craziness twice a year? Maybe that's too much of a good thing, but MLS needs more of this goodness. All right, so there's my uh, State of the Union for the week. As I said, it was just a phenomenal uh, weekend of Major League Soccer, soccer. <laughs> and I, I think the folks, whether it's the ownership or the folks in New York, uh, have to be looking at it and saying, that was one for the ages. That's what we've been trying to, in a certain way, manufacture for a long time and it doesn't always work out like that but each and every game was wonderful mossy did you watch any of the uh, mls action this weekend i did and before we get into any of the specifics i have to ask you why do you hate the red bulls <laughs> so whenever i do a game uh and i know twitter is not the best focus group but it's what we have and for better or worse we often uh react to it so whenever i do a game it's amazing how i can find equal uh, but opposing views as to what my baggage and history and biases are. So after the game last night, inevitably, there it is. Why are you so against the Red Bulls? And then another person, why are you so against uh, Philadelphia? It was, it was an incredible game. Like I said, I was in Philadelphia with the great J.P. Della Camera and Daniel Slayton and calling that game. And there were moments in that game. And look, I know that at times, I am painted with the brush of being uh, a grouch uh, or being uh, too pragmatic or too business-oriented or, or lacking, uh, lacking emotion um, or true connection when it comes to the game. And I think of it sometimes too much as, as a business and all that. And I, that's, that's fair at times. But there were moments in that game when I was sitting up there in that booth with J.P. Della Camera where I made a point of looking around and I really, it, it was, it transcended the actual game. It made me so uh, 
happy and joyous. And I have to say, it was one of the most, if not the most enjoyable evenings of soccer, and in this case, Major League Soccer, that I have been a part of. And I know I was working, but even in that moment while working, I could say this is a great game. This is part of a great weekend. This crowd was going nuts. The goals were going in back and forth. The drama, the intrigue, the interest uh, was at levels that I haven't felt before. They may have been there before. I just haven't felt them in that way. And that I felt it even while I was working, I think says a lot about the atmosphere that was created that night. But as I said, what was created this weekend uh, when it comes uh, to Major League Soccer. It was just a, a wonderful moment to be, uh, uh, to be a part of. And I don't hate the Red Bulls. Uh, I don't hate anybody. I am a lover, not a fighter, as you know, Mossy. Uh, but I got to tell it like it is. And that was so Metro because the... You know, for those that don't know, the New York Red Bulls used to be called the uh, the Metro Stars way back when I played for them, uh, and then when I worked for them, and then they transitioned to the the Red Bulls. And they have a long history and well documented history of futility. And this loss and the way this loss came about, I think, just goes right into that jar of futility and is representative of what this team has been over the years when it comes to when it comes to the playoffs. Anyway, go ahead, Mossy. Did you hear what Jim Curtin said after the game? No, I didn't hear what Jim Curtin said. What did he say? He said, Euro snobs might not like the playoffs, but nobody can deny it was an incredible couple of days. Uh, Jim, next time mention me my name. None of this subliminal stuff. <laughs> That's right. We had the whole playoff conversation. It and and look, as I said, I know it's it is being manipulated and, and manufactured, and there's only so much that you can do. And the soccer gods definitely smiled upon MLS with the types of games that they got. But I do think that that one game situation really changed the mentality. And even going into the games, we sat, you mentioned Jim Curtin, we sat with Jim Curtin, we sat with Chris Armis and the players. I mean, to a person, I think people appreciated it even before it started and then when it happened it played out there was more urgency there was more recognition that you can't wait for another day uh to fix things and i think it manifested in the way that the games were played and even the one nothing game for example down in uh in atlanta that was still an exciting game back and f back and forth so it wasn't just relative to the actual goals that went in those are all those are all wonderful i think it was much more so the way that these games were played was in a different way which brings us to you know to the question that i posed in the uh, in the state of the union would mls be better served if they had this uh, this two season type of format that straddled the summer and you had playoffs involved in both of this, or is that too much of a good thing? And, and I only bring this up because, first off, I was talking about it with Jason Wormser, who, uh, for those that don't know, worked with us at Fox for many, many years and is a, a smart guy and thinks about the game. And he had actually sent this out as a text over the last couple of days. But way back in 2006, Mossy, when I was working for the Galaxy, I remember talking about this and proposing this as a potential league and season format to MLS at the time. And it, it didn't go anywhere. So this has been kicked around for a long time. Do you think that that's something that could potentially generate more of these types of situations going forward? Or is it too much of a good thing? Yeah, it's a uh, system that uh, Mexico uh, has gone with since 1996. They play the Apertura from July to December and then the Clausura from January to May, yep. each with regular season and playoffs. 
And then the winners of the Apertura and Clausura do meet in a match called the Campeón de Campeones. But those Apertura and Clausura winners, those are considered league titles. So you essentially have two champions in the same season. So that would be the one argument against. Uh, there, there's no doubt it doubles the excitement, but some people think it's a little bit convoluted. Uh, you wouldn't have an issue with that necessarily, with having two different champions in the same season? Well, I wouldn't because in, in my scenario, you would not only have the playoffs and the champions of the specific seasons, but then you would also have, and look, I, I know in, especially in America, we love to supersize things and add super to it, uh, and I'm guilty of it. Hashtag super club. We would have a super champion ultimately in. So you would have both the, the, the playoffs and the winners of the, uh, I don't know, what, what are we calling it? The spring season and the fall season. And then a mega or super type of, uh, of winner that, that supersedes all of that kind of stuff. But maybe we're making it too, uh, too complicated and maybe we just need to sit back and enjoy what MLS has given us so far. Now, to get back to this past weekend, uh, a lot of people were celebrating the fact that, as you mentioned, home teams won five of the six games. They felt like that lent weight to the regular season. Are you on that page, or you could care less if the road teams had won this weekend? You weren't so caught up in that. Well, as I'm, yeah, because as, as I mentioned in the State of the Union, I didn't see the advantage, and I know it played out from a results standpoint, but I didn't see it really, really where one team was dominating over over another. There were there were points of the game, but I never got the feeling that anybody was out of their league. And so, yes, there was the advantage, but I get the feeling that if you played these these games again, it could very easily shift, and the balance could shift to the away team. So I didn't. I don't think it was. I don't think that this can be pointed to that makes your finishing in the regular season that much more important. I know that might sound strange because of the actual results, five of the six uh, games where the home team uh, the home team wins. I just think that it was just really close games, and that's the way that it, that it shook out. But once again, it goes back to this thing. On a one-off game, anything can happen. If you played these games out, I don't know how many times, I think, the, I think it just shows how even a lot of these teams were. You take a team like... The, the New England Revolution, who were in dire straits for half of the year, and then Bruce Serena completely turns them around. I don't think that they went into Atlanta thinking that Atlanta was so much better that they didn't even have a had a uh, have a chance. And I don't think any team that went into any of these uh, environments thought that. And certainly, L.A., the lone team that was able to win on the road, didn't go into Minnesota thinking that Minnesota was better than uh, better than them. So I don't think that this necessarily emphasizes your regular season uh, results and makes it that much more important just because the, the results say that it does. What was your single biggest takeaway from this week? And I know it's hard to pick one, but favorite moment, favorite game, favorite individual performance? Well, you know, since I did work the Philadelphia game, you know, it's sometimes it's unfair to make a single result a referendum on an entire season or an entire team or an entire coach, or in this case, it would be Jim Curtin. And yet I got the feeling going into that game that the pressure to win, given their futility, and we talked about the Red Bulls futility, but given the the way that this team was propped up this year as something different, something elite, or at least to be considered a possible MLS elite. And yet there was still a shaking of the head saying, yeah, but. And if they had lost that game, I think their entire season would have gone poof and, and gone away. And like I said, it's not fair, but 
Life isn't fair and soccer isn't fair. And that's, that's how important this result was. And Jim Curtin spoke to it. He said, this organization needed a seminal moment. This organization needed a moment in history to hang its hat on because every other team has these, has these moments. There are people that were at the game last night in Philadelphia that many, many years from now are going to talk about that game and say, I was there, I saw it, I was there when this happened and this happened and this happened, and I think it's going to live long. And had they not won that game, I think, I think it would have been up. This is just more of the same. But they did, and they kind of got over that hump. And I think it's really gravy now from here on in for a Philadelphia team that now believes in themselves or believes the hype that they've lived under all this year. And until you win that big moment, until you have that big moment and win that game, it's sometimes difficult for you to believe, uh, to believe in it uh, uh, going forward. So looking ahead to the conference semis, we'll start in the East. I'll save the best for last, and we all know what that is. Okay. Uh, in the East, yeah. NYCFC uh, hosts Toronto at City Field. That's the match you're covering. And then, as you mentioned, Atlanta takes on Philadelphia. Overall thoughts on those two games? Well, Toronto is—both is both of these teams are, are sneaky good. Uh, NYCFC has been good all year. They started out with, you know, difficult in difficult situation, and they turned it around. They obviously won the East— I have them going to my to MLS Cup, which means obviously I have them beating Toronto. Toronto's on a roll. I think it's what eleven games unbeaten or something like that. And since they're up in Canada, oftentimes from a broadcast perspective, we don't do a lot of Canadian teams, and so we don't see them on a continual basis. Yeah, yes, I watch them, but we're not. We're, there's not this steady this steady diet. Keep in mind, they also when they when they ultimately beat DC, even though they made it really interesting, and DC came back, and then they beat them in, in extra time and ended up ended up. 5-1. It was much closer than that scoreline looks. And they did it without Josie Altidore and Omar Gonzalez. So we're going to be, it'll be interesting to see two things. One, what they look like if those guys are back in the lineup and do they just get better or do you, do you not mess with uh, what is at least on the paper proven from a, a result standpoint has been good. And then the other side, we're going to finally see these teams that have had a over two weeks of, of layoff. And does that help or hurt a team like NYCFC uh, or on the other side, LAFC, to have been, to have been given that opportunity and to give, be given that quote-unquote advantage of winning their, their conference and therefore getting the bye in the first round? Or is it, does it hurt them? And do they come out stale and got to shake off that rust that they, that they may or may not have? So that's, I think, going to be interesting. But I have NYCFC going through. By the way, that game is going to be at City Field. So myself... Uh, and J.P. Della Camera once again, and Daniel Slayton will be heading to City Field on Wednesday night uh, to broadcast the uh, NYCFC Toronto game on FS1. In the West, Jordan Morris and Seattle play host to RSL. Let's do that game first. Uh, what are your thoughts there? I think that Seattle goes through, uh, not just because Jordan Morris is playing some of the best soccer of his life, and I think feeling it, even even without the, the, the hat trick, I think, I think they're better. I think they will have gotten that scare from Dallas that I, that I think is essential for teams to get and still be able to overcome. So I think they'll be more buttoned down. Well, they'll be more attentive to the defensive side of it, whether they have the personnel right now to do it or this is just what they are and they're just going to have to outgun and outscore people. I, I don't know, but I still think that Seattle finds a way past, uh, past RSL. It was fun to watch that RSL game in the, uh, well, it started as rain and then it finished up as, uh, up as snow and the, uh, the careers and the, uh, and the season for Nick Ramondo and Kyle Beckerman, who have been around for so long, they, get, they live to fight another day. 
And then the main event, Thursday night, LAFC, led by top 20 player in the world, Carlos Vela, square off against the Galaxy. As you mentioned, LAFC, a long layoff since the regular season, and now they face an opponent they've never beaten, and a player in Zlatan who clearly is in their heads. Uh, how scary a proposition is this for Bob Bradley and company? God, I, I love an El Trafico. I love it so much. I, 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 I'm so excited to see this. Now, look, we're not broadcasting and it's on ESPN, but they'll, they'll, those folks will do a great job. Uh, and this transcends who's broadcast or anything like that. This is something, this is must-watch type of soccer, soccer television. I, I still think that this is the moment when LAFC finally... Uh, vanquishes the the specter of of uh, the galaxy and more importantly uh, Zlatan. He has been in their head forever, and I think at some point it's got a break. And I think this is the moment that LAFC comes in and finds a way. But don't think for a second that there wasn't a little bit of a shaking of a head from from Bob Bradley and the players that said, "Uh oh, here we here we go again." They have to believe, and once again, we talk about belief, which is so important in sports, but they have to believe that they deserve to be the favorite, even in this game, despite what has happened with the Galaxy. And I think this is the moment where they, they turn that narrative on the head and, uh, and get past uh, the Los Angeles Galaxy. Because even the other day in Minnesota, you know, Galaxy is such a strange team. And they, they find ways to win because they have, they have some good talent. I don't think that they're a great team. And they open themselves up constantly to opportunities. And if you're able to take those opportunities that they give you, especially early on, and put them away and say, hey, this is, this is not the same old LAFC galaxy type of situation that we have, I think they can put them away. And not just put them away, but they can put them away early and cruise to a win against the uh, Los Angeles Galaxy. Yeah, I didn't realize this was the ESPN game. On second thought, this is actually the worst game of the week. Uh, I wouldn't watch it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, way to go. So there's two games on, on Wednesday uh, on FS1. As I said, I'll be in uh, New York doing the NYCFC Toronto game. And then the, uh, the next game is the Seattle RSL game, which John Strong and Stuart Holden and Katie Witham will be up in uh, Seattle doing that. And then on Thursday, it shifts over to ESPN with the Atlanta-Philadelphia game. I think this is where the Philadelphia... Uh, train stops and Atlanta finds a way past uh, Philadelphia at home. And like I said, LAFC beats LA. So my, my, my semifinals are uh, NYCFC against Atlanta and LAFC against Seattle. A fun couple of sports days in LA. They're already calling this rivalry week. On Tuesday, the Lakers, we're taping this on a Monday, on Tuesday, the Lakers uh, take on the Clippers in the opening night of the NBA season. The Lakers with LeBron and Anthony Davis, the Clippers with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And then two nights later, you get El Trafico. So uh, that'll be fun. Although my favorite sports rivalry in LA is Rams Chargers. You won't believe how much that splits the city here, but uh, these two rivalries will be That's fun That's football, well. right, Mossy? That's the yep. football team, American yeah. football team, right? Yes. Okay. Good. Wonderful. Well, it's good to know. That's like a public service announcement you just made. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Anything else, Mossy, about this, uh, this crazy MLS weekend? Uh, no, that is it. All right. Moving on. Hello, people. It's Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's ad-free, so you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now back to the show. Mossy makes the case. 
All right, it's that time again. Uh, time for uh, Mossy Makes the Case. Mossy, what are you casing for this week? My case, simply put, is that it's okay to get excited about young players. Last week, Italian newspaper Tutto Sport announced the 20 finalists for the prestigious Golden Boy Award given every year to the best player in Europe under the age of 21. And this week, the 18th edition of the FIFA Under-17 World Cup gets underway in Brazil. Coverage coming your way on Fox Sports. Both things are happening at a time when there's a lot of discussion in Europe about how to treat young players. Particularly in Spain, it's been a big theme this season because of the resurgence of Martin Odegaard at Sociedad, the emergence of Ansu Fati at Barcelona, and the arrival of João Felix at Atletico Madrid. Plus, Real Madrid have these two Brazilian teenagers in Vinicius Jr., and Rodrigo. And I've noticed this pattern. A young player gets on the field, does something amazing, flashes incredible talent. Folks get excited. They talk about how special he is, how he reminds them of blank, established, world-class star. And then there's this other group of people who fancy themselves the adults in the room and feel the need to throw a wet blanket over everything, pointing out that he's only 18, he's only played X amount of games, calm down. It's absurd to mention him in the same breath as the established world-class star. And that is a weird way to go through life. I will never apologize for getting excited about young players. Uh, to me, the most fun part of a player's career is the beginning when they burst on the scene, do everything for the first time, and exhibit limitless potential. Of course, the odds of somebody having as good a career as a Messi or Ronaldo is minuscule. It's always a safer bet to bet against. But if somebody is talented enough that it's even plausible, then that's noteworthy in itself. So keep that in mind when you're watching this under-17 World Cup. Will we see the next Messi or the next Ronaldo? Maybe, maybe not. But remember, once upon a time, those two guys were the next somebody. Oh, Masi. Uh, so I guess I would be the adult or uh, to a certain extent, the wet blanket person that you are talking about. I, I, it, it, I, the whole young player uh, youth thing is, it's not lost on me. I get why people like it, but it, it, it holds no interest for me. I want the finished product. And by the way, it's not to say that people can't develop, but I'm not going to go watch young players playing in, in, in little games or little tournaments and stuff like that just so that I can extrapolate it out to what they're going to be. Or just so, and this is the reason why a lot of people do it, just so many years from now, they can turn to their friend or turn to somebody and say, ah, yeah, but I saw him when, and I knew it when, and stuff like that. It's, it's much more for them to make themselves feel better or make themselves feel much more worldly. It's really an elitist type of move uh, for a lot of people to go out there uh, and do it because they feel like they have the insight into something better that's coming and they have the, uh, they have the eye to be able to spot that talent and see it at a time where nobody else, uh, nobody else can see it. And so I, I don't have, like I said, I don't have the desire or the time to do something like that. And it doesn't mean that when a young player is doing well, I don't take notice. But they're doing well on the big stage. And they, and they can do better. And they can certainly grow. And that they, But it's a, it's, a, it's a secondary thing for me, their actual age. If I see a good player, it's a good player. That, a, that, that good player is playing well in X league or X league or X league or for X team and stuff like that. That's, that's great. And that they're young, that's, that's even better. But I only look at it in terms of they're young because that means that I'm going to have that many more years to enjoy that player because that player is going to, get, uh, going to get better. I don't know what this fascination is with watching young players in other than 
you know, you're just built that way that you like to be that, that scout in that moment, finding that diamond in the rough. Do you think that overpraising young players can go to their head and contribute to them not uh, fulfilling their potential, or that's a bit of a cop-out? If a player doesn't pan out, it's probably for reasons that we're going to surface anyway, and it's not because we complimented him too much when he was 18 or 19. You know, in, the, uh, in that movie, uh, Goodwill Hunting, when uh, Robin Williams, uh, he's a psychologist, or uh, I guess uh, his character says, you, you can't push him, you'll, you'll break him, you know, do it. No! Okay, we, we are, first off, we're in the sports world. That's what we, that's what we do. We blow people up, uh, and then we tear, we tear them down, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you, how you look at it. And this is, this is part and parcel of being a young phenom. Everybody has had to go through it. You mentioned all of those, all of those players. It's rare that we see a player come to fruition in their mid to late 20s. Usually we will have heard them, we, we will have followed them, and that pressure has been on them a lot of times from the start. A lot of them are phenoms that have started at a young age, been identified at a young age, and come up. A lot of them fall off and never live up to that potential, but the ones that do, they've always been under that, that pressure of performing and living up to the expectations, sometimes unrealistic expe- expectations, but that's what it means to be a great player. So when people talk about, I don't know, a Christian Pulisic, are we putting too much pressure on him? No, this is what it means to be someone like Christian Pulisic in every other country and every other uh, culture. And I think we're doing a disservice if we try to coddle him or protect him. If, if we break him by putting pressure on him, then maybe he wasn't the person that we thought or the player that we thought all along. And look, I'm not saying you crush a young player. And I'm not saying that a young player can't be crushed and that their mental fortitude doesn't develop and, uh, and, and improve over years. But look... If you can't handle it at a young age, when people are being critical of you, when people are expecting more of you, I think it's really, really hard to be in kind of a cocoon and a protective covering and then all of a sudden come out and be able to deal with it. And when do you come out? When, when do you stop uh, pulling your punches? When do you stop saying stuff that you know isn't necessarily true? Or when do you start saying stuff that may or may not, quote-unquote, break that player because it is critical, because it is high expectation type of thing. On the Under-17 World Cup, the U.S. in a group with Japan, Senegal, and the Netherlands. They kick things off against Senegal on Sunday. Gio Reyna, Claudia Reyna's son, is the U.S.'s big star. The U.S. has performed well in these youth tournaments in recent years, which is an inconvenient fact for folks who want to portray it as if the U.S. has no clue how to identify and develop talent. How interested, how excited do you get in these youth tournaments? If the U.S. does well, do you think that augurs well for the future, or you don't read that much into it? Well, I told you before that I don't get that excited about youth tournaments because I know how quickly things can change, both just the nature of, of life and sports and timing and luck and all that kind of stuff that plays so much of it, the nature of, you know, some of these kids still haven't even gone through a full, you know, puberty type of change in terms of what their bodies are going to be. And it, it plays havoc. Uh, you, if you, if you don't develop on an even type of course, if you have stops and starts and growth spurts and all that kind of stuff, it can be a a real, real problem. So I don't put too much into it, but I recognize why people in particular are looking at it right now, given where the national team is or isn't, and the problems that the national team uh, has had, because we're, we're dying for something to grab onto. 
And if you see a glimmer of hope coming through in an under-17 World Cup or something like that, then it makes you feel a little bit better about that future. And look, 2026, that's 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 also a, a shining light in the further distance. It doesn't mean you bypass 2022, but 2026 is, is sitting there. And so when you're looking at some of these players that while they may not be ready for 2022, if they continue on this trajectory, could possibly not only be ready for 2026, but a 2026 that is played in the United States, that, that makes you feel warm all over uh, when it happens. But we've seen time and time again, players that, that haven't. And I've played with players that as a as young players, we're really, really good, and we're on national teams. And it, it just, for a number of different reasons, it petered out as they, as they got older. The ones that were able to consistently do it, that's pretty impressive. If you are able to star as a younger player on national teams and matriculate to the next national team, the next national team, the next national team, and then continue to do it from a club level and a national team level. But those are, those are few and far between because of all the different variables. Uh, one interesting note, Brazil's best under-17 player is a kid named Hainier, who plays for Flamengo. And Flamengo had originally agreed to release him for this tournament, and then they changed their minds at the last minute. They did the same thing with Vinicius Jr. two years ago, by the way. The Brazilian Federation was furious, and they've petitioned FIFA that moving forward, clubs should be obligated to release players for under-17 and under-20 World Cups, which, if that ever happens, the clubs would go ballistic, and that would be the next chapter in this eternal club versus country dispute. But this whole situation involving Hainier has triggered this larger debate in Brazil about the value of these youth tournaments. There are some people that think if a guy is already playing for a professional club and he's already well-known and already attracting big offers from European clubs, then it's worthless for him to go play in a youth tournament. While there are others that think, no, it's always a good experience for a player. If he's going to arrive at the senior team down the road, having already played uh, tournaments for the national team at youth level, and also it's useful for a country to watch their best young players compete against other countries' best young players to get a sense of where they're at in terms of producing talent. So it's an interesting sort of larger debate that uh, goes on as far as the uh, value of these under-17 and under-20 World Cups. As far as the Golden Boy Award, which I mentioned, so it, it's a calendar year award. It goes to the best player under the age of 21 who plays for a European club. Uh, the list of past winners, uh, it runs the gamut from Messi and Mbappe to guys like Renato Sanchez and believe it or not, former Manchester United midfielder Anderson. So it, it's a bit hit or miss whether it's uh, indicative of a guy that's going to go on to greater things. Uh, Matthias De Litt, uh, won it last year. He's one of the 20 finalists this year. It's an interesting list. Alfonso Davies is in there. Kai Havertz, João Felix. Holland, the, the Norwegian striker we've talked about that's scoring all those goals for Jesse Marsh at Salzburg. But I do want to hone in on two different players who made the list, uh, Jaden Sancho and Phil Foden. Uh, Sancho is the overwhelming favorite to win it. Both Sancho and Foden came up in the Manchester City youth system. Foden has decided to stick it out there, even though he barely plays. There are folks like Arla White that think he's making the right move. And just by training with that City team every day and being around Pep, he's learning so much. While Sancho said to heck with that and chose to go to Dortmund. If Sancho does win this award, will this be another occasion for everybody to sort of reflect on and celebrate the path he chose in his career? Yes, you don't learn anything. Well, it's not that you don't learn anything from training, but nothing prepares you and helps you more than actually playing in games. And playing in good games. So not just playing games, but playing in good games. And you, certainly Jaden Sanso has done that in the league that he's playing and the team that he's playing and what he is doing. It is so much more beneficial than just training every day. In albeit a, a very good situation uh, at Manchester City with a wonderful coach. And yes, you learn things. But 
I, I even think Pep, if you if you sat him down and said everything being equal, yes, I want my players actually playing in games as much as he might believe in the things that he does uh, that he does in training. And, and, and just to get back to the thing that you mentioned before, if you're going to call players in for the full national team. Why wouldn't you mandate that you have to let release them also for these uh, these other World Cups? They are ultimately uh, World Cups. I think it, it has to be all or nothing. And I hate when either players are put in the middle, and their worth, their worth, by the way, could be and oftentimes is increased by a good World Cup. Yes, you are risking injury. You're risking injury just letting them walk around the street. But this is one that you're obviously agreeing to risk uh, injury. Playing, uh, playing in a soccer tournament, but I think the I think the benefit far outweighs the cost when it comes to releasing these players that potentially could return to you from a club perspective that much more valuable uh, going forward if and when they have a uh, a good World Cup tournament. But the the Young Boy Award or any of these types of awards that are given to individuals sometimes they can be a blessing. Sometimes they can be a curse. And once again, we've seen, and you just mentioned a bunch of names there, some of them go on to bigger and better things. Some of them, we find out that was as good as it gets. Speaking of Sancho, two years ago, the Under-17 World Cup, England went on to win the tournament anyway, so nobody cared. But it was one of the most bizarre things I've ever seen. Dortmund released him for the group stage, but not for the knockout stage. They, they pulled him back out of the competition after that. Hopefully they haven't, uh, or thankfully they, they didn't do the same with Gio Reyna this time around. So I, I, I think the U.S. has him for the entirety of the tournament. Uh, so we'll see. And by the way, on the Golden Boy list, Golden Boy, by the way, also the name of Jerry Seinfeld's favorite T-shirt. Uh, but I should mention, uh, <laughs> I should mention uh, Mason Mount is one of the 20 finalists just to uh, make our producer Alex Dowd, big Chelsea fan, happy. He's got a big grin in there. He's already ordered his Mason Mount jersey. He thinks he's a future England number 10. So uh, he got in there as well. But uh, uh, Sancho, definitely the favorite to take home this award this year, which I think would be richly deserved. Well, look, Masi, I think we'll, we'll, we'll end it here. If, if you are into watching young talent and it, and it, and it makes you, it gives you hope for the future and it makes you feel better about either your team or your league or your sport or as I as I have submitted it makes you feel better about yourself have at it but don't expect everybody and when I say everybody I mean me to follow you into this uh, or, or down this down this hole of watching it give me the product that is doing it at the high level and not the finished product because nobody's ever a finished product but give me as close to the finished product as you possibly can especially if uh, if I want if you're making me uh, if you're if I'm a customer and you're making me pay for it I don't want to I'm not paying for the future I'm not paying for potential I'm paying for what can you do for me now like Janet Jackson you know what have you done for me lately <laughs> All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. All right, it's time for that uh, moment in the show when we do our Ask Alexi segment. You use that hashtag Ask Alexi on all the different platforms out there. You send us comments and questions and concerns. We pick a few of them out and we answer them on the air or we uh, address them on the air. Mossy, what do the uh, people want to know about or screaming about this week? Uh, first up, at Charlie Trick, most successful. Uh, World Cup slash club teams can be associated with established identity traits, be it tough, gritty, world-class, disciplined, aggressive, or whatever it is. If you were the coach of the U.S. men's national team, what traits would you identify and or promote with them? Okay, so this gets into, and, and we, we recorded the pod last week before the debacle, the U.S. losing to Canada in the uh, Nations League. 
And I did an emergency State of the Union in which I gave you my thoughts. You can find that out there online if you didn't, uh, if you didn't uh, hear it. And just to you know, give you a Cliff Notes version of it, we get very excited and are, are happy and everything's fine when we win. And the sky is falling. Everything is wrong when, when we lose. And especially when we lose, given what happened, not qualifying for the uh, 2018 Men's World Cup. And then going to a place like Canada and playing a team like Canada, which we haven't lost to since the 80s. Uh, it was not a good look. It was not a good look for the team and the way that they played. It's not a good look, I think, for uh, uh, Greg Berhalter. Having said that, this team has the opportunity to play the home part of this home and away against Canada down in Orlando. And I think it becomes a crucial moment of truth for the players and for uh, Greg Berhalter in terms of how they respond. But it, you know, there's a bigger question as to what this team ultimately is. And I've talked about this with you in terms of the listeners out there. And I've talked about this with Greg. And the question comes down to Greg wants to do something. He's been very clear. You can say what you want about Greg Berhalter, but he's been very clear and he's articulated from the start what he wants to do, whether you agree with it or not. And I respect the fact that he has done that. I've always said that I'd rather have someone with a a flawed plan than no plan at all. And oftentimes in U.S. soccer, we have no plan at all and we wing it. Greg Berhalter is not winging it. He believes in what he is doing. He also believes, and this is where the, the debate starts, that he has the players to do what he wants to do. I've always argued that I would rather see this U.S. national team because of the talent that we have, because of the limited time that a coach has, and because of the history that we have that sometimes gets thrown out of the way. But there is a history. I would rather see this team concentrate on being the best version of themselves as opposed to being something completely different. Once again, it doesn't mean that I don't respect the hell out of Greg Berhalter for trying to do something not just different, but drastically different than what has been done in the past. We have always been a team that wears its heart on its sleeve, that work, outworks everybody out there to make up for what may be uh, either perceived or, or the reality of a less of lesser talent out there. We have been a team that has had a chip on our shoulder because of who we are in the landscape of, uh, of soccer out there and the way that we look at ourselves and our insecurities and our inferiority complex that we have internally and the way that people look at us from the outside. And we've used that to our advantage for many, many years. I don't think that we are a team that in, uh, by any stretch of the imagination has the ability certainly right now or even after a few years of being what a Spain has been or what a Manchester City is or what a Barcelona is. And that's okay. Uh, we have uh, played in a certain way. Yes, we have absorbed pressure at times and countered. It doesn't mean we can't and don't want to have the ball. But that ultimately is what I think that this team is about. Set pieces. It's, it's a... And for a lot of people, that represents a pragmatic and a simplistic and a raw and almost caveman-like approach. I'm not saying it can't be refined, but using what they have there and making the best version of that, I still, I don't, I still don't think we have seen the best version of that on display, despite our successes in the past and certainly our recent failures. And so I would like, like to see what the U.S., with all of that history and all the things that I talked about, and look, you can throw out words that you uh, threw out, Charlie, like tough and gritty and all that kind of stuff, discipline, aggressive, all that kind of stuff. That, those really don't mean anything. But I would love to see 
the U.S. team be the best version of themselves. And I think we have yet to see a U.S. team be the best version of what the U.S. has been, is, and can be. Yeah, I thought Matt Doyle wrote a pretty good piece about this after the Canada game. And by the way, uh, Greg Berhalter, if you lose Matt Doyle, that's like Lyndon Johnson losing Walter Cronkite. (laughs) Matt Doyle basically said what you said, that the idea should be to take what the U.S., this identity they've cultivated in the last 25 years as a scrappy blue-collar team and add talent and add layers of sophistication to it. But right now, that pursuit of quote-unquote sophistication is coming too much at the expense of the other stuff, and the trade-off is not worth it. We're seeing flashes of good football under Greg Berhalter, but not enough to justify the fact that this has become, frankly, a soft team. So I think that is a fair concern right now. Yeah, yeah. And that, you know, that was the other part of my emergency state of the union. I said that that this team uh, looked confused at times, and this team ultimately looked, and what was most disappointing for me was that it looked soft. And in no way should that ever be, we can lose, when I say we, the US, we can lose, but in no way should everybody, should anybody be looking at this team and saying that they are soft. And I wasn't angry, I wasn't mad. There were the stages of grief uh, after we missed out of the World Cup, and first you're angry, and then you're sad, and unfortunately, we're at a point right now where I'm apathetic to the situation. That's, that's not, I'm not happy about that. That, that sucks. We sh- that shouldn't be for me or anybody else. And, uh, you know, it's up to him that he's got to figure out uh, a way to win everybody back and make everybody care again. And with results like that against Canada, that's a problem. So he's got the opportunity. And as I, as I started this conversation off with, when you win, everything's great. And when you lose, everything sucks. So you better win going forward. All right, Mossy, what's the, uh, what's the next question? Uh, next two are from a Reddit question and answer session that you did last week. Yep. First up, uh, Steve Bischler. This is playing off of you recently mentioned that Carlos Vela was a top 20 player in the world. So uh, Bischler wants to know what other players in MLS would have been uh, top 20 in the world while they played in MLS? While they played in MLS, uh, I think you could talk about someone like Landon Donovan at, in his prime. Going way back, uh, let's see. You know, people don't people forget that Carlos Valderrama was involved from the start of Major League Soccer, and I think you could probably have made a case for him. So there's a couple of players, and and once again, this <laughs> this ignited uh, when I when I did this the other day, and it it warmed the cockles of my heart that the uh, ignition ignition happened, and everybody's screaming and yelling at me, and more so than uh, than they normally do, and it's it was healthy for the most part. It was respectful <laughs> uh, for the most part. But this is, you know, this is a fun thing to talk about. So, you know, Landon, who at times is criticized for the fact that he made the choice and recognized that he needed to make the choice to be in Major League Soccer, there is the feeling that he, uh, that he failed us. And it is us. You're, you're, it's not him, really. When, when, when you scream and yell about Landon, or you criticize Landon for having the audacity to stay in Major League Soccer as opposed to quote-unquote challenge himself elsewhere. It's really about you and the way it makes you feel as an American soccer fan, or not even an American soccer fan, it's just a, as a soccer fan out, out there. Uh, I, well, I can at times have been critical of Landon for different things. When it comes to the recognition of what he needed to do be, to be successful in the prime of his career... I don't look at it as that negates 
anything that he was doing at the prime of his career, and therefore it doesn't negate the potential for him to be in my top 20. And that's where people go crazy, and that's where people call me names, and that's where this whole debate uh, ends. So there, there's a couple of examples. People don't realize also how good Carlos Valderrama was. And yes, he played over in Spain, and he did that, and then he came, you know, played in the 94 World Cup and then played in, in Major League Soccer. I think you could certainly make an argument at that time that he would be in somebody's top 20 of, uh, of players playing in the world. And it was a different time, too, when he was playing. By the way, Keith Costigan came in hot on Saturday for our Bundesliga coverage. Uh, he listened to this podcast for the first time in a year and a half, and he had a major issue with the Vela discussion. Uh, he disagrees with you that uh, Vela's in the top 20, but his bigger problem was with me. He felt like I did not present the counter-argument well enough. I got steamrolled by you in that discussion. That was his interpretation of how that went. <laughs> well, you wouldn't be the first person to get steamrolled by me. But yeah, look, you, you stick up for yourself. I, I don't think that that's... Well, it might have been true at that moment because he felt that the opposing voice was not adequately represented. And he did. He, he texted me too. And I love the fact that he listens I, I, as, I, as it, it's with him or anybody else. It, it, it doesn't matter to me whether you agree or not. As a matter of fact, it makes it that much more interesting when you when you disagree. And in his case, it makes it that much more interesting because he has uh, he has wonderful takes. I'd love to get him on the show at some point. We should bring him in uh, at some point and sit him down at the uh, round table and pick his brain because he's a he's a smart guy. He's a funny guy, uh, a, uh, and a and really intelligent when it comes to uh, the way that he thinks about the game, even when he's thinking about it differently. Uh, one last thing before we move on. Could you still make a case that Zlatan in this point in his career is a top 20 player in the world? Not at this time in his career. I think I think it's, yeah, I mean, look, the, the guy is a freak, but what he was and what he is, and it's not taking anything away from what, what he is doing right now, but no, he would not be in my top 20. And finally, Kappenheim wants to know, who taught you the most about soccer? Well, Captain... Let me think about this. Who taught me the most? Uh, I've, I've often talked about the influence and the impact of Bora Milutinovic, uh, our coach for the 1994 World Cup, that he had on me and so many others. There were guys that liked him and guys that didn't like him. He came at the absolute perfect time for me. I think he had the greatest impact on me as a player because he forced me to look at the game and myself in the game in a way that I had never been asked to do before and to analyze movements and decisions that I made and to think about the, once again, it goes back to not just winging it. And it doesn't mean not being natural about the way you play, but not just winging it. And for a long time, I was winging it. And you just rely on your innate ability and your, and your physical abilities, your technical abilities to get you through. But when you start actually thinking about why you're making those decisions and being much more efficient about when and where you make decisions, it, it, it elevates your game. And he came to me at a time, you know, I was 22, 23 years old when I was, I was ripe and I was like a sponge and I needed it. I needed someone to do that. And so, Captain, uh, if I have to say who taught me the most about soccer, it would be Bora Milutinovic. And in doing so, he taught me lessons that have served me well beyond the soccer field. And uh, I owe him a tremendous amount of gratitude for, for the opportunity that he gave, but, but more importantly, for the lessons that he taught me on the field and the lessons that he taught me off the field. That is it. 
All right. Thank you so much. Use that hashtag AskAlexi uh, and send us your comments, questions, and concerns, and we'll read them again as we do each and every week. Thanks for uh, all of those, and uh, thanks for the folks that also participated in that uh, Ask Me Anything over there on Reddit. That was, uh, that was fun to do. It gives a little more breathing room than your typical Twitter question and answer, uh, Ken. So we took a couple of those questions off of there. All right, moving on. The Back Three. All right, it's time for the uh, back three. Some big stories or games or moments from the world of soccer. What's in our back three this week, Mossy? We begin in Spain. Uh, Real Madrid stunned by Mallorca this past weekend, and they were leapfrogged in the standings by Barcelona, who beat Abar 3-0. Goals by Messi, Suarez, and Griezmann. Uh, their best game together, by the way, uh, they've played so far, those three, so it's got everybody excited that that could actually work. Uh, but as far as the Real Madrid result... A uh, couple of things here. One note on Real Madrid. When they last won La Liga in the 2016-17 season, they also won the Champions League that season. And the way Zidane managed it was he essentially had one team for the Champions League and one for La Liga. And the La Liga team, the B team, as it were, was nicknamed the Segunda Unidad. And just to show you how loaded that squad was, the quote-unquote B team often included Isco, James, Asensio, Kovacic, Morata, Pepe, and Zidane has made a big deal about how he wants to win La Liga this season. He's actually gone as far as to say it's his bigger priority rather than the Champions League, and he's trying to cultivate the same dynamic here, but he's finding out that his second unit is not as good this season. Uh, Jovic has been a disaster so far. Vinicius has regressed. They don't have proper backups in a couple of the midfield positions. Odriozola is a big drop-off from Carvajal. Militão is still settling in at the back, so I think it's going to be tough for him to replicate the same formula. It's going to be interesting to see how he handles that, but but I do want to ask you about Mallorca, and I'm going to go to a weird place here. Hopefully, you're willing to go there with me. Sure. First of all, I am an unabashed Stu Holden fan. He's one of the nicest people I've ever met. Anybody that has a problem with that can bugger off. But I will say... Eh, okay. <laughs> I will say, uh, Stu Holden invested in Mallorca when they were a third division team. They've since moved up to the top flight. He's been firing off excited tweets about that. And again, this weekend, he was all excited after they beat Real Madrid. And every time he sends those tweets, invariably, he receives an avalanche of responses from U.S. fans who can't understand how he can benefit from promotion relegation and yet have ostensibly voted against it in the U.S. soccer presidential election. Do you see a contradiction there? What do you make of that paradox? I love Stu. I have no problem. Uh, I don't see a paradox uh, because he didn't vote against promotion relegation. Uh, promotion. There's nothing stopping anybody from building a better mousetrap. There's nothing stopping promotion relegation from, have, uh, from happening. We've talked about this time and time again. If you want it, have at it. Go build it. If it is that magic bullet, then go ahead. It's what the cu uh, customer wants. It's what's going to change soccer. Then fine. Then the market will decide and it will go great guns and it'll be the best thing since sliced bread. Just because Stuart Holden is part of the Athletes Council uh, from the United States Soccer Federation, not to get too much into the weeds, just because he's part of that and just because he is part of the United States Soccer Federation doesn't mean that he or anybody part of the uh, Soccer Federation doesn't like promotion relegation. And it certainly doesn't mean that they can't benefit. And I don't think that he is being hypocritical by investing in Mallorca or or being excited and rejoicing in the uh, in the success of the team that he bought into when he was uh, when it was in the in the third division by any stretch of the imagination. Go ahead, Stu. Who the hell cares what any what anybody says? I don't think that he uh, he or anybody that 
enjoys promotion relegation should therefore think or come out publicly or privately and say that something like MLS, which doesn't have promotion relegation, is the Antichrist or is, is the devil. And this, this either-or type of situation, I think it's short-sighted and I don't think, I don't think it's fair. We love to create villains and we love to sit up on our high horse and say, uh, you're a hypocrite or you're, you're being sanctimonious. And at times it's, it's completely true and at times it's fair and relevant to accuse people of doing that. I just don't think that it applies in this type of situation. And if and when there is promotion relegation to the extent that it exists around the world in the United States, I will be the first person, I've said this time and time again, to extol the virtues and to promote it and to celebrate it. I just don't need promotion and relegation to enjoy my soccer. And Stuart Holden can invest in a league and a system and a culture that is steeped in promotion relegation and also appreciate and celebrate the fact that there is an American soccer system that for the most part doesn't have it and he can support if and when that soccer system changes or a new mousetrap is built that is better that the people uh, that the people want so you do you, Stu. Enjoy it. And congratulations on the Mallorca uh, success. And you know, people are going to say what they're going to say no matter what. People say it every single day about me. And uh, it's not that I'm a robot and it's not that Stu's a robot or, or you want to have people say bad things about you. But, you know, you put yourself out there. These are the types of things that are going to happen. Moving on, we have the uh, match day three of the Champions League this week. Uh, Real Madrid, who we just talked about, big game. They're away to Galatasaray, and they have only one point from their two games. So if they were to have a negative result this week, start to get worried about them actually getting out of this group. Another big match, uh, Inter host Dortmund. If you presume that Barcelona are going to win that group, then uh, Inter and Dortmund are essentially fighting for second place. And these two games coming up, they face off match day three at the San Siro, then match day four at Signal Laduna Park. will go a long way in determining uh, who finishes second there. Uh, those games are going to be a lot of fun. Uh, Lukaku and Lautaro going up against Royce and Sancho and company, presuming Royce is, or I'm sorry, Sancho is uh, welcomed back into the lineup. You know, we, <laughs> we didn't mention this before when we were talking about him, the Golden Boy section, but uh, he was suspended by Dortmund this past weekend for their match against Gladbach for returning late from international duty. So uh, all of a sudden, Sancho's uh, status there is a little rocky. But from an American point of view, Jesse Marsh, Salzburg, they take on Napoli, who eliminated them from the Europa League last season. Uh, so after going toe-to-toe with Jurgen Klopp in match day two, now Jesse Marsh gets Carlo Ancelotti. How excited are you for this one? I'm so excited, and obviously there's the American connection. And, and, but more importantly, even if, even if you're not into the whole American thing, look, Jesse Marsh, uh, last, uh, last time around, just announced his presence with authority and his team and what happened, and obviously with the viral video of him in the locker room. And so now he's a known commodity, as is his team. And that means that the daggers are out. That means that people are uh, either curious as to what the follow-up is going to be or are waiting for that that fall because people look at somebody and they say, oh, he's getting too big for his britches, all that, all that kind of stuff. This is, this is a tricky one. Is this, uh, where, where are they playing this game? Home or away? Salzburg or home? Salzburg at home. All right, so it's, 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 there's, the, there's the advantage of playing at home. But look, I mentioned <laughs> Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? All right, Jesse, what have you done? You had that, that wonderful moment at Anfield with Klopp, which was a game that, by the way, you lost, okay? But you came out smelling like a rose. Well, 
let's go. Let's see what you got. And whether it's Klopp or Ancelotti or any of these players that have been around long enough, they're going to tell you the first thing is you're only as good uh, as the, the game that you're playing. And this game, I think, is going to be huge. And if they were to falter here, I think it would confirm suspicions of a lot of people. I think there would be a lot of... Uh, People that would look at it as, well, what's that, uh, that, I guess it would be a German word. I don't know if they use it in, in Austria, schadenfreude, right? Yeah, schadenfreude, yeah. Schadenfreude. I mean, there's a lot of people that because of the attention that Jesse got, and by the way, that an American got, are looking for him to get taken down a peg or two. And maybe this is that moment. If he doubles down and has a great performance here, uh, it, just incre- it just continues to increase the, the mystique uh, and the brand, if you will, of Jesse Marsh would be wonderful, which would be wonderful from his perspective and from an American perspective. And one more from an American perspective, Ajax host Chelsea, Christian Pulisic, things are trending in the right direction. He came on in the 64th minute this past weekend against Newcastle and played well, played a part in Alonso's winner. Uh, remember, he also had that assist to Batshuayi in the game before against Southampton. So he's at least carving out a role as a super sub here. We're moving away from him not even getting on the field, not even getting on the 18. The next step, obviously, is getting himself back into the starting lineup. But uh, assuming he steps on the field at some point in this game, it would mean coming up against Serginho Dest, which is interesting. Are you uh, starting to feel better about Pulisic? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Frank Lampard's saying some some positive types of things, which is which is good. I think that there's an appreciation that he's put his head down and he's been, and, and he's and he's worked hard. Look, it was always going to be: can you make an impact when you get on the field? And from a substitutions perspective, he is doing that, and it's being recognized and it's being valued. And now that next step is: all right, fine, but can you start? And if and when I give you that start, can you? Can you do something to prove to me that you should be it should be there? There was never any questioning, I don't think internally and certainly externally, about his ability. It was whether he was at the right place. And I think Frank Lampard's been around a long... He's a young coach and an experienced coach, but he's been around long enough to understand that what the reality may be in one month can be very, very different a month later in terms of what we what we think about players, how they're playing, all of that stuff. And I, I think he just wanted to give it time. And Frank Lampard's smart, too. You need all the bullets at your disposal that you can have. And so while Christian Pulisic might not have been the flavor of the month for him, it doesn't mean that it becomes that go-to flavor going forward. And Frank's been around long enough to see that happen time and time again. And it would be a, he would be a fool to squash that because you never know when you're going to need somebody. And so keeping him around while still motivating him and not just telling him what he wants to hear, I think was, at least on the surface of it, the smart move for now. And as you said, it is trending in the right direction. You just hope that it continues on and that I'm knocking on wood here. He stays healthy. And we end on the NWSL, uh, which has its uh, championship game this upcoming Sunday. It'll be the Chicago Red Stars against the North Carolina Courage. Chicago beat Portland in the semifinals 1-0 on a goal by Sam Kerr. North Carolina defeated uh, Megan Rapinoe's team, Rain FC. Th- this matchup loaded with World Cup stars. Chicago has Sam Kerr, who I just mentioned, has uh, Alyssa Nair, Julie Ertz, Morgan Bryan. Uh, North Carolina has the likes of Crystal Dunn, Debinga, Sam Mewis, Abby Dahlkemper, uh, our colleague Heather O'Reilly, who was a Fox Sports commentator this past summer in Paris. We've talked about women's soccer and how important it is to grow at club level in this country as well. It's always an interesting period right after a World Cup to see what kind of bump it gets and how many fans they can hold on to. 
Now, right now is a, to be honest, is a brutal period in sports because you've got uh, the NFL and college football in full swing. You've got the baseball playoffs, the NBA starting up, MLS playoffs, European soccer. Uh, so you're c- competing for eyeballs is not easy. Um, what's your overall sense here? Is there any buzz for this? Is there a place right now in the sporting landscape for, for this NWSL final? I think there's I think there's a place you're never going to have the perfect situation and we've we've talked about this for so many years it's you're always coming up against something I mean if basically if you just wanted to have a season in like a week in the middle of summer then you wouldn't be competing against uh, you wouldn't be competing against anything but at at some point you just have to play the games and deal with the reality of the competition that you are are going to face for the NWSL look they've had a massive increase in overall attendance and that certainly uh, is attributed to the increase interest of what happened this summer with the World Cup, and they knew that they were going to get a jolt. It'll be interesting next year to see what this uh, what this looks like. We're recording this on a Monday, by the way, too. There, there's a, if, I, if, if, if rumors are to be believed, Sacramento is going to be announced as a new MLS team. There could be an NWSL component uh, team with that, which will be great for, for both MLS and for NWSL. But it goes back to you know, the continued promotion and the importance of this league. Yes, I do think that there is a place for, uh, for this league in the, in the sporting landscape. Uh, we're, we're coming off of the announcement of over a billion viewers for the World Cup. That can only help soccer in general, and in particular, women's soccer, and when it comes to the United States, NW, uh, NWSL. So that's good. Sam Kerr is worth the price of admission uh, and worth you watching regardless of when she's playing and that she's playing in a final is wonderful for her, the goals that she scores. Uh, And she was running riot on that left-hand side uh, for Chicago against the uh, against the Portland Thorns. And by the way, that 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 left-hand side will be the right-hand side for our friend you mentioned, Heather O'Reilly, playing right back over there for Carolina as they host and try to be repeat champions. So that's going to be fun. Heather O'Reilly, by the way, scored a penalty in the uh, in the semifinal. And then you mentioned uh, was it Dabinia with that free kick that basically sealed it, and they went on to win four to one. So. They vanquished both Chicago and uh, and Carolina vanquished Cascadia and they said no more Cascadia for you. So we'll see what happens in that final. Yeah, I think that there is definitely a place in the landscape for this league and for these these stars. You mentioned all the World Cup stars that were created over the summer. I think it's I think it's it's not easy, and there are still plenty of challenges ahead. And as you get further and further from the World Cup, you lose some of that spark. But you're also going to have next summer with uh, with the Olympics, and it's a very different type of Olympic experience when it comes to the women's national team as opposed to the under-23 men's national team that participates with a few uh, players thrown in there. So that'll be another spark that you just got to keep chipping away. It is not for the faint of heart professional soccer uh, in the United States. Men's, women's, co-ed naked, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a difficult and a... It's a difficult slog and ultimately has to be a labor of love. But NWSL final, yeah, I think there's... There's a place for soccer people to be watching that, but I think there's also a place for sports people to be watching it, if nothing else, for what has happened over the summer uh, with the, uh, the increased interest when it comes to women's soccer. That is it. All right. Uh, wonderful. Well, so we come to the end of yet another show. As I mentioned, I am on the road. I will be in New York this week for continued MLS playoff coverage. I'll be back in studio next week with my good friend, uh, David Mossy. Thank you guys for uh, accommodating me here while I, uh, while I am on the road. And at the end of each show, we, uh, we give you our one big thing. And uh, this week, it goes back to just a wonderful weekend of soccer. And I just want to reiterate how 
uh, you know, I know at times I can, I can be a grouch and at times I, I, I am a grouch, uh, but it, it warmed the cockles of my redheaded heart to be a part of not just Major League Soccer, but just to be a part of soccer. You know, you mentioned NWSL and, and, and all of the soccer that we have. And we love to kick ourselves for what we haven't done. And sometimes we also have to pat ourselves on the back for, for what we have created. Is it perfect? No. Is it finished? No. Is there plenty of work and plenty of challenges and problems out there both on and off the field when it comes to what American soccer is in 2019? Absolutely. But you know what? It is ours. It is La Cosa Nostra, warts and all. And to have that moment the other day when I was in Chester, Pennsylvania, in a sold-out stadium between these two teams, and to see the incredible passion and energy and joy when it comes to this game that we all know and love. It just made me feel so good. And as I said, it was above and beyond the actual scoreline or the goals that were happening. I just, I took a moment to look around and sometimes I don't take, I don't take what I do for granted by any stretch of the imagination. I am incredibly privileged and fortunate to do uh, what I do. But there are times where if you can, being able to take a deep breath and look around and to appreciate the moment and what you have and how far, how far we've come, I think it's essential to do that. And I'm glad that I was able to do it, that I was sitting next to the legend that is JP Della Camera, who has seen and called more games than I've ever been a part of and has been doing it since, uh, since the 80s. It was a special moment and it just reaffirmed what we are, and I say we, everybody, what we are doing here. We are building something special. We are building something unique. And I will get off my soapbox now, but uh, it is only to say thank you so much for everything that everybody out there is doing when it comes to this game. Whether you're kicking the ball uh, on the field or whether you're helping off the field, it means something. And it is something special that you are doing. And even if you don't realize it now, you will come to realize it. And there will be moments like I felt the other day when it is graphically illustrated to you how cool it is and how important it is. But the fight never stops. So onward and upward. All right, anything else, Mossy? Uh, one more thing, yes. Uh, reminder, this week is the Copa Libertadores semifinal second legs. Tuesday, Boca River at La Bombonera. Boca needing to overturn a 2-0 deficit. Uh, Wednesday, it'll be Flamengo and Gremio at the Maracana. It was 1-1 in the first leg. The winners will move on to Santiago for next month's final. And Conmebol announced last week that the Maracana will host next year's Copa Libertadores final. I tweeted this, but it bears repeating here. That means that from 2013 to 2020, the Maracana will have hosted a Confederations Cup final, a World Cup final, an Olympic final, a Copa America final, and now a Libertadores final. That is an incredible run. I'm hard-pressed to come up with uh, another stadium that's had a run like that in a short period of time. It's the stadium where I watched my first games as a kid, uh, so I have a lot of romance around that place. Uh, and so uh, that was very exciting news last week. I know it's undergone renovations. It, it, the feel of it has changed. It, it basically it used to be Nevada Smiths, and now it's turned into an Applebee's. That's a New York-based soccer fans <laughs> will get that reference. Nevertheless, uh, I still consider it all, like Wembley, I still consider it all part of the same history. And so uh, that was uh, exciting news last week that it'll host next year's Copa Libertadores final. And this week we'll find out which two teams reach this year's final. Remind me again, Mossy, uh, and, and the folks out there, where's that Maracana Stadium? What, uh, what country is that in? 
Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. Well, there it is. All right. Well, congratulations to Maracanã and to all the uh, Brazilians out there and the, and the pride like you, Mossy, that they take in uh, such hallowed ground, once again, hosting uh, finals going forward. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of this show. Uh, continue to download and to review and to rate and to su subscribe and do all the different things that you do out there on all the different platforms. We will be back again next week. And until that time, size the day.